The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. By my reading of political philosophy, every regime, in a sense, ultimately comes to an end because its contradictions ultimately undermine whatever virtues it might have had. And I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think it's a very real possibility that we're in a hinge of history where the next thing is in the offing. And my hope is that that next thing is going to be a better and more humane way of organizing our society, because the prospects of a worse and less humane way is also ever real and ever worrying. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. Patrick Deneen is a difficult one to pin down. He criticizes the extreme inequality in America today, but does not like progressives either. Nonetheless, his challenge against liberalism is powerful because it is unhesitatingly direct. Still, it can be difficult to understand. His case against liberalism isn't really about policies or even political reform. Rather, Patrick wants to reorient values away from the individual and back toward the community. He believes liberalism's emphasis on individualism has created vast inequality and hollowed out local communities. Patrick Deneen is a professor of political science at Notre Dame University. He is the author of Why Liberalism Failed and the Forthcoming Regime Change Toward a Post-Liberal Future. Now, before we get started, I want to reflect on how this conversation fits together into this three-episode arc on liberalism. In last week's episode, Michael Walzer referred to liberal as an adjective. It was a way to think about the importance of liberal values. So Patrick's values-based case against liberalism directly challenges those liberal values. Of course, most of us do value individualism, but we also value our relationships and our community. Still, it's not clear whether we should have to choose one over the other. Next week's guest, Francis Fukuyama, will have more to say on this subject. Now, if you like these conversations, please give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. You can also find a full transcript of this episode at democracyparadox.com. But for now, this is my conversation with Patrick Deneen. Patrick Deneen, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Hi, thanks for having me. So Patrick, I've already mentioned that I think that you provide what I consider to be the strongest critique of liberalism. And why liberalism failed, you're right, liberalism has failed not because it fell short, but because it was true to itself. It has failed because it has succeeded. In that quote, you don't leave a lot of room to say liberalism lost its way or 
maybe it was corrupted. It's a direct attack. But before we kind of get into the reasons for that, I want to make sure that we're on the same page. Because a lot of times when we talk about liberalism, different people have different meanings and it allows people to kind of escape some of those attacks or to be able to defend it in different ways. Why don't we kind of start there? Can you explain what it is that you mean when you describe liberalism? Yeah. So I think if we got a you know a room of 10 intellectuals or 10 intellectuals in this room, there would be a very small likelihood that everyone would agree on a definition. And that's the, kind of the nature of the beast. But I'll offer my own. And uh, of course, people can agree or disagree. But I think at its root, it goes to this change of definition of liberty from a kind of classical to a modern understanding. If you read Hobbes or you read Locke at the very beginning of their respective most famous texts on the social contract, they both describe the state of nature as the condition of being free. And in a condition of freedom, freedom is defined as the freedom to dispose of your person and your property as you see fit. And so you could say that a liberal order, political, social, economic, and so forth, is going to seek to lower or eliminate all barriers to the free use of my body or myself, and indeed all barriers and obstacles to defining who I am have to be lowered if not eliminated altogether. And of course, the disposal of my property, the disposal of the things that are mine, or more broadly, a civilization that sees the world as something for me to do with as I wish, a world in which you know science, technology, the use and often abuse of the materials of the world, the environment, this becomes the dominant way in which we perceive what freedom is, is the freedom to be myself and to do in the world what I want to do. And this by implication means that anything that limits my freedom to dispose of myself or my property is seen as contrary to the deepest assumptions of the regime. And I say regime here in the kind of classical sense, the kind of comprehensive way of life. And this will take various forms. I think when we think of conservatism or what I would call right liberalism, we tend to think of this freedom, especially in the economic realm. And this is why the idea of the free market and the market as a singular, right? No boundaries and barriers to the free trade and movement of goods, services, work, and workers. A kind of unbounded single marketplace where there's no limitation on my ability to dispose of my person and my property as I see fit. That becomes, in some ways, the first stage of liberalism, especially in the economic realm. But more recent times, we see especially left liberalism pushing especially the ideal of a kind of autonomous human individual who is entirely self-defining. So it has to be, in some ways, liberated, not just notionally, but kind of metaphysically, ontologically, from any pre-existing definition of who I am, who you are. So you're not defined by your family, where you came from. You're not defined by, of course, your gender. You're not defined by your sexuality, or only to the extent that that's something that one can, in some ways, alter potentially through science and technology. So we see these kind of this broad spectrum of ways in which our freedom is understood that we often think of as divided between the left and the right. My argument is that both, and indeed all and more of these understandings of freedom advance together in a liberal order. And what we tend to treat as separately, oh, the problem is in the economic realm. The problem is in the social realm. I see this really as a much more comprehensive problem of regime. And the more free we become by this definition, the less capable we are or even willing we are to act together 
on behalf of something we might consider or craft as the common good, the more fragmented we will become in our individual lives and the more sort of disassociated, contentious, even fractious and hostile we will become in the political realm. Any obstacle to my achievement of my liberty will now become a kind of existential crisis. So again, what we often treat as a problem of our politics is actually, I think, at a deep level, the problem of our regime. And the deepest irony is that what we've actually done is create the conditions of the state of nature. And we've done it through a lot of contrivance. We've done it not because it's natural to us, but because it required a pretty massive kind of apparatus, political, economic, social apparatus to make us free in the way that Hobbes and Locke described our freedom as by nature. It turns out that that doesn't exist by nature, but you can create an imitation or a version of it through artifice. And this is why I suggest in my book that liberalism has failed because the more it succeeds, the more it creates the conditions that it was supposed to overcome the state of nature. So what I'm hearing from you in your critique is that we've lost a lot in our adoption of liberalism, that we've lost our sense of duty, our sense of responsibility, obligation. And at the end of the day, it sounds like we lost our sense of community itself. Is that fair for me to say that? And is there anything else that we've lost in our adoption of liberalism? Yeah, I don't necessarily want to just tell a story of loss. Of course, what any you know sort of pro-liberal in the room would talk about is, are all the things that we've gained. And those things tend to be material, often economic, a kind of sense of progress. I do think that, you know, we have to, in some ways, see the attendant costs of those. And in some ways, this is a loss. And here, social science can actually measure some of those losses. I mean, you know, famously, Robert Putnam and a number of other social scientists, Christian Smith at Notre Dame, in his studies of religion and religiosity, all kinds of studies of marriage, of friendship. In other words, all of the ways that we can measure and sort of tabulate relationality all show without exception, they all show declines. And that this is the cost of the progress. Now, if if you are a kind of person who says what really matters is our material comfort, our prosperity, our wealth, then you would say this is the greatest time in the history of human, you know, human civilization to live. And I have many friends who make these arguments. If you measure human happiness in some ways by measures of relationality, by the thickness of our relationships, you would have to say this is one of the worst times for human beings to live, given the kind of cratering of kind of bonds and relationships and kinship that we're seeing. So it's a realm of contestation of gains and losses. But I do think that one inevitable and unavoidable consequence of this understanding of liberalism and the realization of this aspiration is going to manifest itself as an ever more sort of perfected autonomous individual, especially in as much as our liberty is really defined to the extent to which we have constant resort and opportunity to exit. And I think this is really one of the key aspects of what liberalism is. Liberalism is in some ways to create a world in which exit becomes almost a kind of default. And when I say exit, I'm using kind of social science language. Going back to Albert Hirschman, who actually used to be at the same institution where Michael Walzer currently is the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University. And Albert Hirschman was thinking in terms of sort of consumers and how consumers relate to consumer products, but he thought this was an analogy more broadly for sort of social and political phenomena. 
You said there's ways that people can relate to products. Think about a product you might like and it changes or something about it you don't like anymore. People of a certain age will remember when Coca-Cola changed its formula and they brought out a new formula and its loyal consumer base protested. And Coca-Cola then brought out the old product, calling it classic Coke, while alongside they had new Coke. And this existed for a period of time, but people were so unhappy about the new Coke that it eventually disappeared from the shelves. You don't see it anymore. This is an example of what Hirschman would say would be consumers who use voice because they're loyal. They're loyal to that product. And therefore, when something is less than satisfactory, they exercise voice. But there's another way to sort of register your discontent in a kind of consumer world, and that's to exit. And in this case, you would just go buy Pepsi, or you would go buy another product, or you would not buy the product anymore at all. And this is the action or activity of exit. And what Hirschman wanted to understand is, what are the conditions in which one is more likely to develop loyalty and therefore exercise voice as opposed to exercising exit? And Part of it is a society, you could say, where exit is a little bit more difficult. There are certain obstacles to exit in which you sort of more broadly develop the kind of disposition of loyalty that in the first instance, when you're discontent with something, your first thought isn't just to exit. It's how do I make this condition better? And we can begin to then transfer this analysis from the economic realm and from the realm of the consumer. We can think about this more broadly about the town you grow up in the region you grew up in, the family you grow up in, the marriage you enter, the family you make, the country you live in. I mean, there are lots of ways you could begin to think about this. And I would say that in a liberal order, more and more of our default responses to discontent becomes the exercise of exit. That's a kind of fundamental aspect of what a successful liberal society is, is to promote exit so that you leave the conditions where you're no longer happy or content, as opposed to having a disposition of loyalty. So this is where I think you can see how, let's say, a kind of change of the default would, by necessity, require us always to have loose ties and loose connections to other human beings or to places or to traditions or to religions, or you name it, you name the object. And why it is you're going to see these kind of measurements that we see in social science, that we are in some ways one of the loneliest populations in the history of civilization. So I did want to come back to the idea of what liberalism has actually improved. And you kind of preempted me by saying that we have a wealthier society, that we have more material goods. But something that you didn't mention was commitment to human rights, a sense of moving away from some of the most egregious forms of oppression against certain minorities, particularly based on race or religion. Do you see those as improvements? Do you think that those are overstatements in terms of what liberalism has brought to the table? How do you see the gains that we've had because of our commitment to liberal ideas? Every regime is always going to be very aware of the goods that it produces, and it's going to be, let's say, far less willing <laughs> to look squarely at either the costs or where there are lacuna in those goods. You know, even just to acknowledge that we are more wealthy, I think the more successful a modern liberal society is, the more likely it is 
that it's, and we certainly see this in the United States today, the more likely it's going to produce massive levels of economic inequality, you know, to the point in which it creates profound political instability. So every human society, of course, there's economic inequality. I'm not suggesting that there was less economic equality in some utopian time in the past. But we have particularly radically, uh, you know, wide span that today divides the uber wealthy from the disadvantaged in American society today. So when you look in the aggregate, you say, wow, we're a wealthy society. But when you start to look down at a much more fine-tuned level, you see we have really just pockets of our society where the successful, the wealthy, the upwardly mobile, they aggregate together. They put out of their own view those who have not been successful in the economic race of our time and our day, and largely conclude that those people have essentially chosen their condition. And this is one of the consequences of liberalism. You choose your condition. And if you made bad choices, those choices are your own fault. You know, if you read, for example, some of the recent literature on meritocracy, Michael Sandel's book, for example, you see a lot of the ways in which this is articulated, this kind of sense that, well, you know, you got what you deserved. You made your bed and now you have to sleep in it. So even the claim that we're wealthier is, of course, problematic because a liberal society, especially a kind of liberal society that has a kind of deep substratum of the kind of Lockean property economic tradition like the United States, like Britain, is not well equipped to talk about the ways that this kind of economic disparity is actually bad politically. Because the assumption is that if we're becoming wealthier in the aggregate, everyone's better off. This is, of course, right there in book five, chapter five on property and John Locke's second treatise on government. The wealthier the society is as a whole, as an aggregate, the better off everyone is in that society. The more flat screen TVs we all get, the more you know, cell phones we all get. And that's that's true. And any economist will tell you that. But at the end of the day, when there's a radical divide of wealth and the absence of wealth, that's still going to manifest itself politically, socially, and otherwise. And this is something that we're not really well equipped to talk about in ways that, again, that the classical tradition talked about a lot. And Aristotle is you know, very early in his politics. He talks about the way, well, too much inequality is going to be very bad for the social order and the political order. And one of the primary concerns of a good political order will be to have relative equality in the society, relative material equality. So a second frequent response of what we've gained is exactly what you described, how there have been gains in, you know, you mentioned human rights, oppressed minorities. And again, here, I think you can point to a lot of examples in which that's certainly the case. But at the same time, I think you can point to the ways in which liberalism has always had its blind spots. What we now regard as wins of liberalism were, of course, earlier on were not wins of liberalism. And liberalism tells itself a story that, well, the treatment of African-Americans, the treatment of women, the treatment of minorities, the treatment of the Native Americans, well, that wasn't liberalism, but it was. These oppressions were framed and justified in the language of liberalism. And think of the Native Americans. Again, go right back to John Locke. And those who are not industrious and productive, those who are not economically industrious, are not really full members of a liberal society. They are not really to be accorded the same recognition in a liberal society. The industrious and the productive are the people who are going to be the most important in a liberal society. So those who are not industrious and productive, they don't get to keep whatever notional property they have because they're not being industrious and prosperous in their treatment of that property. So early on, the treatment of Native Americans 
in what became the United States was premised on liberal presuppositions. And I think we still actually have these presuppositions. They've just migrated to different places. And here, especially, I'll speak here as a Catholic and as a religious believer, but it's not just religion. The idea that every human being has dignity doesn't stop at the boundary where you're not industrious and you're not productive. And it didn't do so when it was concerning Native Americans or Africans who were enslaved. And it doesn't do so today to the unborn. And it doesn't do so to those who are infirm and ill and sick and elderly. And more and more of the old justification for why you are not a human and therefore you don't belong or you're not a full member of our human community has migrated from certain groups to which that assumption is no longer applied, and it's migrated to other groups. Now, we don't see that because, well, I say we, liberals don't see this, because this is part of what liberalism has always been. Identify the group that's not industrious, that's not productive, that's not a member in full standing of our liberal community, and exclude them from membership. And by a different understanding, a non-liberal understanding, we would see that. That would be evident to us. It would be obvious to us. But by a liberal understanding, in the same way that Native Americans weren't human, African Americans weren't human for a period of time, in that same way, the unborn, the infirm, the ill, the elderly, those people who need to be euthanized, people with Down syndrome, all these people don't qualify. And therefore, they're invisible to us in the same way that in earlier generations, Native Americans, African Americans were invisible to us. So I think liberals have a kind of tendency to self-congratulation and a kind of Whiggish version of history. Um, and that's probably true of all regimes, but it seems especially evident to me among those who are most likely to crow about advances in human rights, advances in you know, recognition of oppression, when it exists and persists in quite vivid ways in our own midst, in our own time. I think this is really important to make sure that we're on the same page. Because a lot of times when we talk about a liberal democracy, we're talking about people that believe in democratic rights, but don't believe in civil liberties. I'm getting the impression from you that you wouldn't describe yourself as an illiberal. It sounds like you're trying to describe yourself as a non-liberal. Do I understand that right? Or would you clarify that? I'm not sure what your definition of illiberal would be, it seems to me that the IL, the work that it's doing, is that you are a bad person. <laughs> it's, a, it's a prefix in which liberal is assumed to be the good and the norm, and ill is definitionally you are not a good and you know normal human being. Your views are not within the range of accepted opinion. That's the way in which I hear the word illiberal being used most of the time. You are one of these people outside of the boundaries of the good and the acceptable. I guess, you know, this is a problem, a kind of definitional problem that I'll be the first to admit to. Too many of the efforts to give a kind of label to where I am and the number of people that I'm trying to think alongside, you know, we kind of take our cue or almost the default is liberalism. It's hard to get out of the gravitational pull of liberalism. So the label that a few of us have adopted of late and we're writing a substack under the title is post-liberal. And this is a label that's kind of been out there for a little while. It was developed in theological circles, an effort to move beyond liberal conceptions of anthropology of the human being, liberal conceptions of the nature of freedom and so forth. 
But even the language of post-liberal still identifies itself in relationship to liberalism. And I would really like to begin to think of ways to move simply beyond the category of liberalism as the supposed norm to which you're comparing yourself. So I'm dispositionally much more attracted to the language of common good, of bonum commune in the Latin. This is, of course, a pre-modern tradition, but it can be re-outfitted and you know, developed in a new way for contemporary times. But it seems to me in almost every particular, the idea of what a common good is sort of by definition opposite to the liberal understanding of the human being, of the nature of society, that somehow our politics is always simply and inescapably a form of aggregation of individual opinion. And maybe this gets us eventually into a discussion of democracy. This is how most of my colleagues in political science, this is how my students, even Catholic students at Notre Dame, this is how most contemporary liberals understand how we operate in modern liberal society is through aggregation, aggregation of individual opinion, or in the marketplace, the aggregation of individual choices. This is what when we speak of the market. The market is not something where we talk it over, we deliberate and we decide, you know, this is the best way to operate our computers or so forth. We aggregate the individual choices and the individual opinions. But the idea of common good is really distinct from the idea of aggregation. It's very different from the idea of aggregation. It's really the effort of a political community to deliberate together and articulate a shared understanding of the good that moves beyond merely aggregation that moves beyond individual opinion, that seeks to shape a kind of more comprehensive understanding of how my individual good and the good of the community as a whole are in some ways can be seen as consonant. But it's a kind of deliberative process. It's not where people start. It's where, hopefully in a good political order, it's where people go. And that's not the nature of a liberal political order. So all this is to say, I don't recognize myself in the language of illiberalism, because I don't begin with the assumption that liberalism is the default or the norm. So very much sounds like you imagine a post-liberal future or a future that doesn't define itself with liberalism. It doesn't sound like it abandons democracy. The way you're describing it, it sounds like under your terms, it would invigorate democracy. Am I understanding that right? So I don't want to speak for every post-liberal out there, but I am particularly drawn to non-liberal forms of democracy. In other words, it seems to me that one of the deep confusions that, you know, not just average man in the street or woman in the street or person in the street has about the nature of democracy and the definition of democracy, but it goes all the way to the kind of highest level of sort of intellectual reflection on what is democracy. You know, again, I'm in a political science department and almost everyone I think today in working in the areas of political science, sociology, and so forth, tend to describe democracy in terms that I just laid out. In other words, in liberal terms, that democracy is a kind of aggregation. It's the aggregation of a variety of human wills. This is the basis of public opinion polling, for example, that we know what the people want by polling them. What's polling? You call somebody up in the you know eight o'clock at night, and we get these phone calls. And then we aggregate all the various opinions, we ask them questions, and then we say, this is what the American people want. But this is just a snapshot of random people's thinking about something that hasn't been developed. You haven't probed, you haven't put those views into conversation with other people, you haven't brought into a kind of public space 
the claims that we might instinctively or intuitively think that this is what I believe and put them to the test and challenge them in the presence of other people. So when I think of the language and the words of democracy, it especially comes out of a classical understanding, a Greek understanding, something like Aristotle, who speaks of what is citizenship. And I think I've already mentioned citizenship is a kind of activity. It's a verb. It's not a noun. It's not an adjective. It's not a status. It's actually about something rather active and requires a kind of activity. Aristotle describes it as ruling and being ruled in turn. In other words, we learn how to be ruled. We learn, in other words, how to discipline ourselves. Every child has to learn how to, in a sense, be ruled, to discipline our appetites. And when we have the capacity then to discipline our appetites, then we can rule in turn. We're not born with the ability to govern, which I think is the kind of liberal assumption. We all just can kind of enter 18 years old, you enter into the public sphere, and then you just start voting. Rather, citizenship is a kind of learned ability. And it's learned in and through the exercise of civic and political governance, and then developing the kinds of governance by which we rule ourselves. So it's a constant feedback loop of ruling and being ruled in turn. And this means you actually have to think a lot about how much of this activity can be given over to other people. And this is something that was highly debated at the time of the American founding. There was a real worry among the critics of the Constitution, the so-called anti-federalists, the worst label ever for, for a political group, never be defined as the anti-group. You ought to be pro. So the pro-federalist side, honestly, they were actually in favor of a kind of federalism. But those who were opposed to the Constitution were very worried about the extent to which these civic kinds of formation of activities, of the development of civic discipline would become sort of emaciated, like muscles that aren't exercised, would just simply become flaccid and no longer developed. And as a result, you would have more and more of the so-called citizenry of the United States that would see themselves increasingly as private, as opposed to public-spirited people, that would think of who they were and what their interests were solely in terms of consumers, of that of people who wanted to be fulfilled in the material realm and not as citizens, as people who had to be active in terms of how they govern themselves. If you notice, an awful lot of the way in which like newspapers will describe the American public will often describe them as consumers. This week, consumers express their unhappiness with rising interest rates, dot, dot, dot. It's actually relatively rare to read in a newspaper. Citizens this week expressed their unhappiness with blah, blah, blah. We have a tendency to do exactly what those early critics of the Constitution feared, which is to think of ourselves in highly privatistic terms. And I think this is really one of the consequences of liberalism, is to hollow out the public sphere and, in its place, develop us without our even awareness of it, conceiving of ourselves in highly privatistic terms. But it is, I think, important to begin to distinguish what I think of as democracy from what many people think of as democracy, which more often than not is actually liberal. It's actually a form of liberalism, and it's not by a classical or alternative definition. It's not democratic at all. So in the book, you actually talk about liberalism using what you describe as occasional consent through voting, where people get asked just every couple years through elections, rather than having something that based on your current comments, sounds very much like a thicker form of democracy. I mean, 
Do you think of democracy as really being a form of consent of the people, or do you think of it as something else entirely? Yeah, in the book, I mention the way in which liberalism eventually becomes friendlier toward what we would think of today as democracy or elections. We should remember that liberalism begins, first of all, in a fairly, if not anti-democratic, having a deep suspicion toward democracy. In some ways, liberalism is developed in significant part as a kind of way to constrain what were then rising democratic kind of energies, the energies of, of a more active, a more kind of demanding democratic public. As education became more widespread, as workers began to see their interests, as, you know, especially with the Industrial Revolution, that kind of democratic energies were unleashed. Of course, you had the democratic revolutions in the mid-1800s. And so liberalism, we tend to forget this history if we ever knew it, but liberalism begins, it develops as a way of constraining democracy. How do we retain our primary allegiance to freedom, to the freedom of the autonomous individual, while allowing a degree of democratic energies to emerge. And the way in which those democratic energies are allowed to emerge is largely through the mechanisms of what we think of as modern constitutionalism. So through periodic elections that are highly well-defined, that are above all elections, generally not in which we would say democracies decide the future course of our country, but rather which we select people who will decide the future course of our country. And how those people come to be selected becomes a very important part of the story. Again, if you read the Federalist Papers written in the late 1700s, 1787-1788, Madison and Hamilton, they believe that the Constitution has been designed in such a way in which a very particular, what they call fit characters or select characters, will be the likely people who will be sufficiently visible to the general populace to be selected. You know, again, if you read the Federalist Papers, the great fear is that we actually not become a democracy, that we not have some form of direct rule by the demos, but that becomes sort of filtered through a series of layers and levels. About uh, 50 years later or so, 60 years later, John Stuart Mill is thinking about these same questions in a piece of writing called Considerations on Representative Government. And if anything, there's more democratic pressures when Mill is writing. And Mill's very worried that the growing influence of democracy and the demos of the people is likely to constrain individual liberty. Right? He sees the demos as a, almost a kind of conservative force. The demos tends to want to do things the way they've done things, because that's what a kind of conservative disposition of the people tends toward. Unlike Marx, who's writing around the same time, Marx thinks that the people are a revolutionary force. Mill thinks that the people the demos is actually a conservative force. I think probably on balance, Mill is actually more correct that much of the time the people tend to be a bit more of a kind of conservative force, except when they get really riled up. But they generally want a world that's predictable, that's orderly, that's stable. And this is what worried Mill, because what Mill really wanted was for really unique, distinct individuals to be able to emerge from the kind of muck of everyday opinion and to become these kind of distinct, free-thinking, original, highly inventive people who would push forward progress, who would push forward new ways of thinking, new ways of being. You know, Mill is in some ways like kind of modern progressives. He's kind of one of the first of the modern progressives. You know, when you hear someone like Obama talk about how the backward people cling to their guns and their Bibles, 
or Hillary Clinton talk about the basket of deplorables, they're kind of a modern version of John Stuart Mill. The fear that the demos is this kind of conservative, you know, stick in the mud kind of obstacle to progress. So what Mill argues in considerations on representative government is that what we really need is to have democracy. Everyone should be able to vote in these periodic elections, not often, not too often, but periodically. But we need to ensure that the most progressed and progressive people in our society are going to be more likely to take the lead, are going to be more likely to have their opinion carry the day. And what Mill proposes is he goes through various ways of thinking about, well, how can we ensure that? Because it's always going to be a smaller part of the population. And he concludes that the way we could ensure that the most progressed people will be in the sort of the governing seat, will be in the driver's seat, is to give people with more education more votes. So the more degrees you have, the more years of education you have, the more votes you should get. This is the proposal of plural voting. And this for Mill was how you would prevent the general demos from sort of overrunning kind of the electoral process. We clearly don't have a lot of people necessarily running around today saying these things out loud, although some people do. Some people actually think there should be some educational requirements for voting in order to ensure and continue progress. But I think de facto, we have a society in which the more progressed, the more educated are likely to occupy the positions, the kind of commanding heights of the most influential institutions, of course, the universities, the media, the bureaucracy, all the various institutions in which you could say this is where an organized form of progressivism is found in our society today. So we don't have the actual plural voting advantage of the educated, but we have a kind of de facto advantage of the educated through a kind of institutional forms. Again, this is one of the ways that liberalism and democracy are not the same thing. Rather, it seems to me liberalism learned how to use and utilize the periodic consent feature of voting in particular to tame it, to tame the potential dangers, the demotic dangers, the popular dangers of voting, of democracy, and to ensure a kind of ongoing legitimation through elections that nevertheless ensured more or less regularly, if not all the time, ensured kind of liberal outcomes. And when there were non-liberal outcomes, well, that's when you encounter accusations and decryals of populism, which is just a way of saying democracy didn't work to liberal ends. So in your critique of liberalism, I mean, in some ways it's very innovative and very unique, but in other ways you share a lot of those ideas with a lot of other writers, some of which actually describe themselves as liberals. You've mentioned the critique about the meritocracy that Michael Sandel has in his recent book, Tyranny of Merit. There's lots of deliberative democratic theorists out there who talk about some of the same ideas about democracy in terms of having more deliberative structure rather than having something that's more aggregative, like you described. What is it that you would say to those people who just say that it's not that liberalism failed, it's just a failure of execution and we just need to be better liberals? I guess I would just say many of the things you would want as a liberal are actually what have come true. And so in some ways, the onus is on you to tell me the ways in which what you regard as an unfortunate side effect. You know, we could say what you might describe as a bug, I would describe as a feature. And to the extent that every political order is going to generate certain kinds of consequences, how is it that one can conclude that the very aim of liberalism, again, to detach people from, you know, their kind of 
past traditions, places, people, identities, and so forth, that that's not going to produce the kind of consequences that we're seeing today. So I feel like the evidence is on my side and the opposition, the loyal defenders of liberalism, you know, they have a problem. And the problem is that the very thing, it seems to me, that they, on the one hand, criticize is also pretty clearly and directly a consequence of what they otherwise praise. So probably the more powerful response by liberals to me is, well, what's your alternative? And that's where a book coming out called Regime Change, in which I begin to try to lay out some of those arguments for some of those alternatives that's coming out right now, slated for June 6th, what the kind of post-liberal order might look like. But I guess the other thing I would say is that, and you began your question with this, is that, and it's funny because a couple of times during our conversation, you said, I've articulated something original and powerful. I don't see what I've articulated as in any ways. Maybe it's powerful. That's up to you to judge. But I don't see it as in any way original. You know, I think a lot of political theory tends to be repeating things other people have said in a new time and for a new audience. I came of age, intellectual age, I should say, when the kind of giants that roamed the earth included people like Michael Walzer, who was kind of deemed in the kind of communitarian camp, Christopher Lash, who was a great critic of meritocracy long before Sandel you know, began thinking about it. A couple of my teachers were great critics of liberalism. Wilson Carey McWilliams was a great thinker and teacher about American political thought, and he taught me a lot about the American founding period and helped me see how right the anti-federalists were, as opposed to the kind of conservatives who love the Federalist Papers and love the Constitution. I see many of the debates and arguments that were lodged by the anti-federalists as having been really prophetic, incredibly prophetic, and we ignore them at our hazard. Another one of my teachers was Benjamin Barber. You mentioned participatory democracy, and Ben Barber was really one of the great articulators of a kind of participatory democracy. So I had a lot of teachers, both actual classroom teachers, as well as people whose books I was reading, who was really the soil and the loam in which my own thinking developed. And maybe I have in some ways articulated some of these ideas and thoughts in ways that you know, have particular relevance to our time in ways that may not have then and couldn't be articulated in quite that way. But it's certainly not a bad thing, it seems to me, to take really good ideas and to make sure that those stay current and newly articulated to relate to our time. And if anything, it seems to me many of those thinkers whose names I just mentioned were probably a little bit more sanguine about the prospects of liberalism than I think I see myself being capable or even any of us who are honest about it can be capable of being right now. By my reading of political philosophy, every regime, in a sense, ultimately comes to an end because its contradictions ultimately undermine whatever virtues it might have had. And I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think it's a very real possibility that we're in a hinge of history where the next thing is in the offing. And my hope is that that next thing is going to be a better and more humane way of organizing our society because the prospects of a worse and less humane way is also ever real and ever worrying. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Patrick. We've been talking about a lot of the ideas from your book, Why Liberalism Failed. But like you said, you do have a new book coming out in June, Regime Change Toward a Post-Liberal Future. So be looking for that to be coming out soon. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for your writings that definitely gave us plenty to talk about. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. 
If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.